I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Forrest Galante is a conservationist, wildlife biologist, and public advocate for endangered species. He's been called the Indiana Jones of biology and is especially passionate about finding and preserving animals once thought to be extinct. He is the host of Extinct or Alive on Animal Planet, as well as the series Mysterious Creatures, and he's hosted many Shark Week shows across the years and has been featured on many other broadcast, digital, and independent shows. His book, Still Alive, A Wild Life of Rediscovery, is part memoir and part biological adventure and was published in 2021. And he's recently been doing work with Colossal Biosciences, a de-extinction company aiming to bring back the woolly mammoth, the thylacine, the dodo, and more. And that's what's brought us together today. So Forrest, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a great intro. (laughs) Well, I try. (laughs) I see our conversation in some ways as part of a double feature with episode 70, in which I spoke with Ben Lamb and George Church, the co-founders of Colossal. But I also want to explore the threads of your life and career that led you to Ben and George, because I believe only by understanding your background and your passion for conservation can we really understand why the project that Colossal is undertaking means so much to you. Sound good? Certainly. Well, first, I think it's important to establish the urgency of the projects that both you and Colossal are undertaking separately and together. According to a 2022 report by the World Wildlife Fund, wildlife populations have plummeted by 69% since 1970. And that's, that's a huge decline in just about 50 years. So is all of this caused by direct human intervention or is anything else contributing to this rapid decline? Why have we lost so much so fast? The underlying cause of it, Michael, is human intervention, you know, and that might be direct and it may be indirect. What I mean by that is we can hunt things to extinction, like the case of the dodo bird or the thylacine, and we also can inhabit areas and drive things to extinction without even realizing that that's something we're doing. It can be an unintended consequence of agriculture, of building, you know, so on and so forth. And so Because of that, and because of the amount of human beings on the planet and the amount of space that they're occupying, not just in their direct footprint, but their indirect footprint, you know, with things like climate change and so on and so forth, we're seeing a massive and rapid decline in species. As I was prepping for my conversation with Colossal co-founders Ben Lamb and George Church, I was Googling around and I came across a clip on YouTube from the Joe Rogan podcast titled, quote, The Company Trying to Clone Woolly Mammoths. And although uh, you were talking about de-extincting animals with Joe all the way back in early 2019, just to be fair to you. (laughs) Yeah. But in your most recent appearance, you referred to Colossal's mission as, quote, real-life Jurassic Park with purpose, end quote. (laughs) Sure. Well, that's very dramatic, isn't it? (laughs) Hey, you know, I think just like bringing back the woolly mammoth, it, it gets the headlines. Yeah. And headlines and marketing are important to research like this. So how did you come to be involved with Colossal? And in what capacity are you associated with the company? I'm on their board of conservation advisors. They have a number of people in their scientific advisory board and their conservation advisory board. And it's people that they have deemed qualified to be able to give them information as to how and why and where some of these species can and shall go. And in my case in particular, you know, Colossal is by its own declaration a de extinction company. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that all they're doing is genetic modification and cellular work to de-extinct animals. They have other plans, which may or may not, you know, it's unclear at this time, include looking for lost animals, rewilding, you know, extinct in the wild species, and the list goes on and on. And so 
I'm lucky enough to be able to advise them on the conservation side of the extinction because of, as you pointed out, my work and my history with diminishing species. And I should say up front, while we're still rather early in our episode, anyone listening to us right now who hasn't yet listened to episode 70 would just be wise to pause, jump over to that conversation and listen to it. It's a brisk 42 minutes and we'll provide a lot of context for this conversation. And George Church touches on a lot of technical aspects that are <laughs> that are out of my depth and probably yours as well, Forrest. They're way out of mine. He is so incredibly intelligent and the level at which he understands the cellular work is so beyond anything that I can even remotely understand. I, my eyes glaze over when I was in you know cellular developmental biology. So it's amazing to work with people that are so much smarter than me. One of my missions while I was talking with George and Ben was just literally try as much as I could not to sound like an uninformed idiot while I was talking to George. Yeah. Try going there, Michael. Try going there. <laughs> it's brutal. You're like, I swear I'm not an idiot. <laughs> as a very brief layman's primer, Forrest, what is de-extinction exactly? And how is Colossal achieving it? And importantly, why does it matter? You know, that's a good question. And I don't think it's really been defined yet. You know, what is de-extinction? Well, extinction doesn't mean that it's, you know, the creature we're talking about is hiding around the next corner or sitting dormant somewhere. It means it's eradicated from the face of the planet. And so what is de-extinction? In its simplest form, it means bringing, you know, it's almost a zombie, isn't it? It's bringing something back that is gone, that has been removed entirely. And that's different from rewilding and some of these other terms that are getting thrown around. But what is de-extinction? I don't think we really know the answer to that yet. Until we have those living, breathing, walking mammoths, thylacine, and dodo, I don't think we really know what the extinction is yet, other than the idea that it's bringing an animal back that has been eradicated from the planet. We'll do a deeper dive into your own adventures in a bit, because they are storied. <laughs> but what would you say is the emotional or thematic through line between your work and advocacy for a de extinction company like Colossal? and your search for thought-to-be-extinct animals. This is something that I really wanted to ask you. What is it about seeing something once gone or thought to be gone that so drives you and excites you? What is it? Michael, I can sum it up in one word. Hope. It is inspiring. It is the hope that we can fix these things that we've done, that we can right these wrongs that humanity has done to our planet. It is bringing back creatures that we have selfishly chosen to eradicate, whether it was directly or indirectly, and especially when it comes to directly targeting these animals. And it's such an inspiring message of hope. When you look at something like the Fernandina Island tortoise, which is a, a creature that we discovered, or the thylacine, all it does is inspire this terrible, depressing feeling that we have wiped out this gorgeous, incredible creature that deserves to be on this planet just as much as we do. And we have eradicated it for selfish reasons. And then to look at it and say, wait a minute, we can fix this. We can bring this thing back. We can put it back into the ecosystem. We can breed it. We can repair a damaged ecosystem and turn the habitat back into what it once was or what it should be is hope inspiring. And I think as a species, human beings, I don't care what side of the political coin you fall on, religious coin, you know, any of those things. We can all band together and look at these things and go, oh my God, we fixed something, something that we broke. And that is hope inspiring. 
Man, I, I I was almost gonna say you should probably run for office with a speech like that. <laughs> I would vote for you. Well, I feel that way. I so strongly feel that if we can fix these things that we've broken, like if I can if I can take my son or my grandson or whatever it happens to be one day to Tasmania and show him a thylacine out there in this like grassland habitat and say, that animal fixed this ecosystem. It didn't used to be here. And when I came here 50 years ago. This whole area was full of mange and there was masses of roadkill and, and the, the Tasmanian devils were collapsing due to facial tumor disease. And see that beautiful striped little thing over there? Well, that creature has come back from being gone and it's fixed all of those problems I just told you. That is the most incredible hope-inspiring thing. That is hope that we as human beings can get behind on everything. And that goes for climate change. That goes for overpopulation. That goes for overdevelopment, for all of these things. But the animal is such a tangible thing. We, we all go to the zoo to fall in love with animals, right? That's why we take our children. That's why our parents took us. And you can fall in love with it, and it's physical, and it's tangible, and you can see it, and in some instances, you can touch it. And if you can do that, you can bring so much inspiration to human beings as to what we can do for the planet, not how badly we're destroying it. Well, let's stay on that topic of hope, of putting right what went wrong. I'd love to briefly explore why putting mammoths in Pleistocene Park in Siberia is going to help us in our fight against climate change. So what's going on with the permafrost in Siberia? How are megafauna, like the recently introduced bisons and yaks, helping to preserve it? And crucially, why is the mammoth the missing piece of that puzzle? Sure. So simply put, Pleistocene Park is an area in Siberia where they have done an experiment to see what happens when you put fleet grazers and megafauna back into the Arctic tundra. How does that increase the permafrost? Now, to try and sum it up as quickly and as simply as possible, all of these smaller fleet grazers, when I say smaller, I'm talking about bison-sized creatures, all of these smaller animals are able to keep the vegetation, keep the trees and things from growing. And in doing that, keeping those trees and things from growing They compact the snow, they compact the ice, they break through the insulation layer, and through a couple processes, which we can dig into if you'd like, they keep the ground up to about eight degrees colder. But, and this is the big but, they are not able to knock down the trees and return the Arctic tundra to what it once was, which is open grassland habitat. Not exclusively, but for a large part of it. So in order to simulate that grassland habitat that cools the environment that allows the permafrost to last longer, they have to take tractors in there, tractors that knock down the trees that allow these other creatures that you just listed to be able to graze and nibble and keep those trees from growing back. But they don't allow for those creatures to knock those trees down themselves. Well, we're talking about 600 million acres or something along those lines up there that have these trees that up to just about 20,000 years ago weren't there And so in order to fix that, that would be a lot of tractors or a handful of mammoths. Right. You answered the question I was just going to ask. When I've explained my conversation with George and Ben, I was at a party recently, actually. It was just before the episode was released. I mentioned that very thing, how the mammoths would knock over the trees. And literally before I could finish my sentence, someone was like, why don't they just knock them over with tractors? (laughs) But it seems to be that the answer to that skeptical question is that there's just simply too much land, that you'd have to have people driving around in tractors for months, if not years. I mean, well, no, not just that, Michael, I'm going to interrupt you for a brief second. It's incredibly unsustainable. You know, you're talking about burning fossil fuels to drive around and destroy habitat 
in order to knock down trees. It's a great thing to do in a few hundred acres like Pleistocene Park. That's not a great thing to do across the Arctic. Yeah. To your smug friend who pointed that out to you, like, <laughs> think about what you're saying. You know, you really want millions of tractors driving across the Arctic, burning fossil fuels. They're probably doing more harm than they are good in that situation. Right, right. Yeah, it looks like a scene out of Captain Planet from the 1980s. Exactly. Great cartoon, by the way. Oh, it's a banger. <laughs> a lot of people also who don't know the deep work that Colossal's doing in this space also think that it's just about bringing back the mammoth or just about bringing back the thylacine. So how will the work of bringing back the mammoth help its modern elephant relatives like the Asian elephant and African savanna elephant, which are also currently classified as endangered? They are. Uh, well, some of the species, I think all of the species now it's a very good question. Like I said before, Colossal is a de-extinction company, and that means that they are tackling extinction from many different angles. Part of that is saving Earth's existing elephants. So the IUCN has declared all elephants, I believe, Asian and African elephants, are both classified as endangered. There's a whole lot of things going on with elephants, right? There's biodiversity loss, there's blah, 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 blah. But then elephants as a species are generally disappearing from the planet. I'm sure a lot of people have seen the studies that have come out about elephant tusk shrinking from over-harvesting and the ones being targeted that you know have the larger tusks and so on and so forth. And so how exactly does Colossal plan on fixing all of this? I can't really say I'm not working in that aspect. But what I can say is elephants are faced with a lot of different problems. They have an incredible person named Matt James at Colossal who is the head of animal operations there, and he comes from the elephant background. And his main focus is figuring out solutions to combating the loss of elephants. Um, and I'm not talking about mammoths, I'm talking about elephants. That includes all kinds of things, right? That includes a cure for EHV, which is a disease that a lot of elephants are suffering from. It's a virus that only affects elephant populations equally in the wild and in captivity, by the way. You really have to ask Matt, but he's got so many different plans as to what Colossal can and will do to help elephants. And that's just one of the many wonderful things that they're planning on doing in order to combat extinction outside of actually bringing things back from extinction. Yeah, the EEHV example is a good one. I talked about that briefly with George in episode 70, and I think it speaks to and we'll get to some of the skepticism in just a second, but I think it speaks to that broader question that people have, which is like, oh, well, why are they so focused on bringing back animals that are gone when so many animals today need our help? And I think what I was trying to get at with that question is that it's not an either or for a colossal. It's a holistic approach to not only bringing back extinct animals, but also preserving the lives of animals that could go extinct soon. Correct. The other thing to consider too, Michael, is the extinction stuff, the de-extinction stuff with the mammoth and, and the thylacine and so on, it's very catchy and grabby, right? And Colossal's very aware of that. They're using these headlines to draw attention, to help with fundraising and all of these things that they need. But they are taking this holistic approach where they use different elements from all spectrums, whether it's conservation, whether it's cellular engineering and so on and so forth, to basically build a better world and a more conservation-minded world. And that's what excites me so much about them. It's not just that they're bringing mammoths back and I want to go and see one, which of course I do, but it's more that they're taking this holistic approach to combating so many issues. Further to that, if they are successful at figuring out all of this genetic stuff that they're doing that I quite frankly don't really understand, there's very few things they can't solve. Do you know what I mean? Historically, there has been no money 
to genetically engineer a variant of Tasmanian devils that can't get facial tumor disease. There's been nothing to combat a genetic, whatever it is, a medication or whatever it happens to be to combat EHV. And the list goes on and on and on. And these are all things, human or otherwise, that are driving creatures to extinction. And so if you really want to talk about the elephant thing, definitely talk to Matt James. I mean, he's an incredibly intelligent person. He understands EHV and what Colossal is doing far more than I ever will. But the point is that Colossal has the tools and the resources to repair a lot of things. And they're using the headlines of things like mammoths and thylacine in order to fund all of the science and technology and build a better, more conservation-minded future. Yeah, to that point, a comparison that I made when I was speaking with George and Ben was in some ways, it's akin to the space race, right? Like if we go back to like the 50s and 60s and all we were to focus on is, oh man, you know, you've got America and Russia racing to get to the moon. What use does that have to us? But so many of the technologies that were developed in order to get us to the moon benefit our day-to-day lives even to this day. The, The research that was spun off from the research necessary to get us to the moon benefits all of humanity. And I think what you're saying here rightly is that a similar thing is happening with the project of de-extinction with Colossal. All of the research and innovation that is going to be required to bring back something like the thylacine or the dodo or the mammoth can be used towards creatures living today and also probably benefit humans as well. And not just that, the space race had no direct correlation to human well-being. Like you said, there were spin-off technologies that helped us in our everyday life. But this is something that we all seem to overlook on a daily basis. When our biodiversity collapses, we as a species, human beings, all die. I want to stress that. When our oceans collapse, humans are gone. When we are completely out of elephants plus a bunch of other things, we're gone. Human beings are gone. It requires a balance in the ecosystem in order for us to survive. And what Colossal is doing is trying to maintain that balance and repair and heal. I often like to describe our world and our ecosystem as a big game of Jenga, Michael. You you know the tile game Jenga that you play? Oh, yeah. You know, you've got this great tower, right? And in the beginning, you pull out dodo birds. You still got a really stable tower, right? Well, then you pull out another tile, mammoths. Pull out another tile. Well, let's say that one's clean water. You pull out another tile, and that's the ocean's ability to circulate carbon. Well, all of a sudden, you've got a pretty wobbly tower, and all it takes is pulling one individual tile out until that entire thing collapses. And it's a compounding amalgamation of all the different things that we've caused to the planet that's going to create collapse. And that collapse is the end of humanity as we know it. And I think people seem to forget that we need these creatures and we need this planet to be healthy in order for us to survive. In my opinion, and I'm not a big conspiracy guy, but there's a reason this current like space race is taking place among these billionaires. I'm sure that they all have advisors going, hey, this planet's not going to last a whole lot longer. It's certainly longer than our lifetime. But at the current trajectory, it's not going to be here forever. And we need to start figuring out other places to inhabit. Versus what Colossal's doing, which is one of the reasons I'm so enamored with them, where they're going, screw that. While we have raised the money to do a space race, we're here to fix the problems at home. And I think that's incredible. I want to put a pin in that spacefaring billionaires thing, because we're going to come back to that in just a second. I want to touch on that. You know, one of the things as I was preparing for our conversation and also the conversation I had with Ben and George is, you know, whether I was going through the comments on the clip from your Joe Rogan appearance in which you were talking about Colossal or even looking at some of the comments on my podcast Instagram in response to one of the clips that I shared from George and Ben, it just seems to be just relentless skepticism and cynicism around this issue. 
And so I want to ask a few questions from, let's say, the point of view of the skeptical friend at the party that I was at a couple weeks ago. Because I think the only way to assure a skeptic to get them on board is to address their concerns head on. And we're going to keep all of these questions in layman speak as it relates to your position as a conservationist and your history there. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty of CRISPR because I'll be way out of my depth and I'm sure you will be too. I will be too. Yeah, no, that's not my area of expertise. (laughs) We will stay away from gene editing. Good, good. But you say in that clip from Rogan, quote, the science is there, it's done. All it took was the money, end quote. And George and Ben echo that sentiment as well. So if bringing back the thylacine or the dodo or the mammoth is something that we can do, the science is sound, Yeah. why do you think that so many people are remaining skeptical about this technology? What's driving that? Because it's new, you know, just like anything. I mean, you know, Michael, like, you know, we're similar age. I'm sure you remember when the internet was getting really popular. Yeah. Our grandparents were like, what a joke <laughs> that is. That'll be gone in a few years. You know, I remember when smartphones came out and I was like, ah, eh, stupid fad. I'm not getting a Blackberry. I'm very happy with my flip phone. And no different for Colossal. It takes dreamers and quite frankly, insane people like George and Ben. And I mean that with the most flattery possible to dream big and think outside of the box. And your average person is incredibly skeptical of that. They're not going to go, oh, yep, I'm on board. That makes sense. Add that to the fact that we have all these Jurassic Park type movies and these futuristic, like all the bad that can come of this ideas that are floating around through the media. And I don't mean like the news media, I mean through movies and Terminators and things like that. Of course, people are skeptical. And then you add that to the... uh, Blanking on their name now. What was that thing that sounded like the Marvel supervillain, you know, the tech company that was, you know, valued at a billion? Oh, you're talking about Theranos. Theranos. I was thinking Thanos in my head and I knew that wasn't right. You know, (laughs) Theranos, when you think of all these pieces, right? Like you think of the Theranos side of the things, you think of Jurassic Park, and then you have brilliant scientists like George and people like Ben who are dreamers going, yeah, we're going to do this. Of course, people are going to be skeptical. And by the way, that skepticism is incredibly healthy. We shouldn't just be like, oh, yep, this is perfect. Let's all jump on board. We should absolutely be skeptical. I'm skeptical and I'm an advisor with them. You know, are we really going to have mammoths in five years? We are. I've been there. I've seen the science. But of course, I'm skeptical. What will come next? How will it go? How will the introductions go? How are the animals going to behave? Skepticism is healthy and we need it, especially when we're dealing with such a powerful technology. Yeah, I think that's super well said. Probably would be more alarmed if there was no skepticism. (laughs) I think it was almost too good to be true. Of course. Yes, absolutely. And if you want my opinion, Michael, on maybe why this isn't the biggest thing in the news every day, like I believe it should be, it's probably because of the skepticism, right? It's people being like, yeah, right. They're really bringing back mammoths. People are being way too skeptical to believe it. You better believe the day the first woolly mammoth walks out into Pleistocene Park that's going to be the biggest thing that anybody's ever seen in human history, you know, or at least in our lifetimes. But the skepticism is going to remain there until the proof is in the pudding. On the issue of money and billionaires, the world is not short in supply of wealthy benefactors with lots of spare cash who want to make their immortal mark on humankind. We all know the most well-known ones. You know, you've got Gates, Bezos, Musk, Ellison, Page, Bomber, But beyond them, there's a ton of extremely wealthy people with spare cash looking to make a fundamental impact who are probably ideologically aligned with someone like yourself, who support your mission of conservation and support Colossal's mission. So the thing that has been just buzzing around in the back of my head, why is this a money problem, right? You mentioned it a couple of times on Rogan, right? Like the technology's there. It's just that the funding and the motivation hasn't been there yet. And now it is. 
So why is it a money problem rather than a technological one? I mean, Colossal just raised $150 million in Series B financing from like a dozen plus investment firms. But my question is, in your view, why isn't there an Elon Musk for de-extinction who's just throwing billions of dollars at it and being like, you know what? You guys can go to space. Here's going to be my mark on humanity. I'm bringing everything back. Well, I'll tell you why. In my opinion, of course, and this is only an opinion, it's not very exciting. If you go and walk around Colossal, if you're a nerd like myself, it's exciting. But I'm not sitting in a rocket going to space, you know? And if you're Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, keep in mind, these guys are doing it themselves, right? Or at least Bezos was. And I think that's much more exciting. Like, he actually gets to go sit in the physical rocket and go stare at the planet. And so, while the building process of the rocket might not be exciting to him, he gets this big benefit of being this hero that got to sit in a rocket and go into space. Well, by the time the mammoth comes out, you know, 10,000 people will have worked on it. I don't know how many people are going to actually touch it. That's not exactly the point of it, right? That's not good conservation to be petting the mammoth. And so, you know, it doesn't have the sex appeal of being the billionaire that went into space. I think that's a part of it. I also think that those guys, and I'm being generalist, and hopefully none of them are listening, but they're pretty disconnected from what the reality of the planet and the reality of what the future may hold. And they're tech people, right? Tech for them is all this advancing space stuff and building stuff and all these things. This is very techy, what Colossal's doing, but we're sort of going backwards, not forwards, right? We're like bringing back stuff that was gone. We're not moving on to the next thing. And that's sort of what I see all these billionaires doing, you know, whether it's Bezos or Musk, they've all built these things that are the next big thing. Colossal may be the next big thing from a business standpoint, but they're going backwards. They're doing de-extinction. They're righting wrongs. They're not moving on to the next thing and making AI and robots and space machines. <laughs> that's, that's true. Uh, and maybe that's wrong. That's just an opinion, but you know, and that's on the spot. But I look at a guy like Bezos or Musk and they're like, they want to do the next cool thing, the fastest car, the trendiest this, the coolest that. This is like, hey, we're a bunch of nerdy scientists who are trying to fix the environment. It's not as cool for them. Okay, here are the two toughest questions I could think of to ask you, and then we'll start transitioning to your work in conservation and your adventures finding once thought to be extinct animals. But here are the toughest two curveballs I could think to throw at you. Sure. So this first one's going to take a little bit of runway. Another quote from that same conversation with Rogan that I'd love to dig into you with was, quote, the reason I'm so emotionally invested in it being colossal is the conservation implications that it has. What this company is ultimately doing is rewilding species that humans have removed. And that's going to, in theory, in a lot of places, offset the imbalance of the ecosystem, end quote, okay? So the mammoth to Siberia logic makes total sense to me. It's like fairly Occam's razor. There's permafrost in the Arctic at risk of melting and releasing up to 1,400 gigatons of methane into the atmosphere. Large grazing animals like the mammoth knock over the trees like we've discussed. They turn forest areas into plains. They, along with smaller megafauna like yaks and bison, keep the ground compacted during the winter months. So in the summer months, the trap permafrost doesn't melt. God, you should be doing the interviews. That was so beautifully put. That was way better than I explained it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that much I get, right? That checks out. Even my little layman's brain, I understand that, right? But when it comes to rebalancing other ecosystems, the logic seems to get a little more wobbly to me. Sure. Because environments and animals adapt to the presence or absence of something, especially over a long enough period of time. So if an animal has been extinct for a very long time, let's say at minimum hundreds of years, but in some cases thousands, the environment that they'd be potentially reintroduced to wouldn't resemble the one they left behind when they died. 
wouldn't in some ways this in effect be like a new animal entering the habitat rather than an old one returning to it? So first of all, the habitat would certainly resemble the habitat that they were removed from, but it would be a shift in the trophic cascade. And especially when we're talking about reintroducing apex predators, hence the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, that is going to create a balance that is drastically needed. Can you explain what that cascade thing that you mentioned was? Yeah, the trophic cascade. So it's the food chain, basically, right? So what we're talking about is, let's take Tasmania, for instance, okay? A lot of people don't know this. Tasmania is stunning. It has big problems with this wildlife. You've never seen so much roadkill. There is massive, massive blooms of the, not the mesopredators, but the small marsupials that are the fleet grazers, you know, the wallabies, the wombats, the things of that nature. And there is no predator in that system any longer to control those species. And so with that bloom comes disease, which is rampant there. There's crazy mange, like I've never seen anywhere in any other habitat. There's facial tumor disease and several other diseases, which is a form of herpes similar to the EHV. And with this massive bloom explosion of the grazers, you have species of plant that are getting absolutely hammered. Now, because humans have been able to intervene, they've been able to keep certain species from extinction, right? Because they fence off an area and you don't have an overabundance of wallabies and wombats burrowing and digging and chewing on everything that's growing there. Once you bring the apex predator back into that system, in the right number, they're going to balance that ecosystem. So what you're going to see first is a very famous graph that you can anybody can look up online called the predator-prey equation. So the predators go away, the prey spikes, right? Then you add in a few predators, and the prey begins to diminish, and the numbers of predators go up, right? And eventually, this undulation that's in opposites comes into a middle ground. So we have less of the prey, more of the predators, but the predators drop off from their peak because they probably overproduce, thinking that the ecosystem can support as many as there need to be given the abundance of prey. And so what I'm saying is there's a level off of predators and prey, and that creates balance. So you and I, talking, going back to your question, we're saying, oh, wait a minute, the ecosystem's changed, things are fine now. They're not fine. They're imbalanced, and we have become calloused and used to that imbalance, thinking that that's acceptable. But that's not an acceptable balance for the ecosystem to be sustainable over long, long periods of time. I'm not talking about 100 years or 200 years, which are the animals that we're talking about. I'm talking about tens of thousands to millions of years, which is where we would see collapse. What you would see, if left alone in some of these environments, is the animals in the middle of the food chain will explode. They'll wipe things out. Ultimately, they'll implode on themselves. And over millions of years, the system, if left alone, would evolve new predators and new grazers and so on and so forth. But the speed at which we human beings as a species have eradicated predators, prey, pieces of the ecosystem has been so fast that nothing has been able to evolve and adapt to balance the ecosystem. If these things were wiped out over very long periods of time, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, then other animals would evolve into their ecological niches, balancing out the ecosystem. But when humans come in and go, hey, we're going to wipe out the thylacine, we're going to wipe out the dodo in 5, 10, 15 years, there's not enough time for species to evolve to fill the niches of those species that we are removing. But the point is, it does resemble 
those ecosystems. They're just out of whack. And we think of them as outside observers looking at the ecosystem as being healthy or being fine, but they're not. They're out of whack and they need these creatures to be put back in in order to be balanced. Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. It would be as if an alien were visiting planet Earth and came across a tribe of humans who all had jaundice and they'd never seen humans before. And so they thought, oh, well, you know, they all have this kind of yellow hue to them. That must just be how humans look, right? But without having a greater appreciation of what human beings should look like when they're healthy, they would misidentify the jaundice as normal when really it's anything but. That is a brilliant analogy. That's exactly what it's like. We look at an ecosystem, go, it's great, it's healthy, everything's happy here. There's lots of animals, but we don't even know what the healthy ecosystem looks like because we've removed these keystone species. Okay, my last question here, my most cynical one I could muster. Please. In an article for the Scientific American, Ben Lamb said about the Woolly Mammoth Project that the resulting creature would not be a mammoth per se, but rather a cold-adapted Arctic elephant with small ears, shaggy hair, a domed forehead, and curved tusks. And Ben and George both talked about this in their episode as well, that there's no way we can exactly bring the mammoth back. It's going to be something that is going to resemble it and maybe pass the grandmother test, something that Ben says, but it's not going to be exactly the mammoth, right? So it would be a kind of chimera right? Like an approximation or an impersonation of the thing that we want rather than the thing that we want. So my question to you, at my most cynical, is if we're not bringing back the actual animal that went extinct, but something else entirely, something new, what exactly are we doing? How much of this is conservation and how much of this is ego, mankind's desire to play God because he can? It's a good question. It really is. And at the end of the day, if the result is positive, who cares is my answer to that. The second part of that question. That's a good answer. (laughs) I don't care if it's all about Ben's ego, which I know it isn't because I know Ben well, but who cares even if it was and that had positive conservation implications. Now, to answer your question, sort of the why behind it. Well, if it walks like a mammoth and talks like a mammoth, is it not a mammoth? I don't really know the answer to that. I know it's not perfect, but we do know that a mammoth pretty much is just a big, hairy, cold, adapted elephant. That's all it really was, right? Look, I'm with you, Michael, 100%. If we could do pure genetic 100% mammoths, thylacines, anything else, that is the best case scenario. There would be nothing better. The technology for that is not there yet, and I don't think it ever will be, and I could be totally wrong. What's the next best thing? What is the system that we put in place to repair the ecosystem, going back to your previous question? Well, is it human intervention, like your buddy said, with driving tractors around the Arctic and trying to pull up millions of trees? Or is it building a creature that fills the ecological niche of a creature that we have removed in order to repair systems and ultimately benefit not just animals, but humanity? In my opinion, the lesser of two evils substantially is making this creature that's very, very close to what the original creature was and fills and occupies all of the same niches that that creature used to. Well said. I think this is a good place to transition to some of your work. One of the animals colossals looking to de-extinct, as we've discussed, is the thylacine, otherwise known as the Tasmanian tiger. You've gone on expeditions to try and find it in northern Australia or Tasmania with biologist Nick Mooney. In your view, as someone who's tried to find the thylacine, who's actively searched for it in the wild, and as someone who's found animals that were once thought to be extinct, but in fact weren't, do you have any feeling in your heart, in your soul, that there is a chance that it still exists, that it's not yet gone? Or do you think that it truly is gone and Colossal needs to bring it back? 
So first of all, my viewpoint on all these things change all the time based on information and based on going on trips, right? So what I say yesterday might not be what I say tomorrow. That being said, I still believe strongly, and it's funny because as a scientist, this is a hard thing to just like verbalize, but it's a feeling and it's not based on like pure real evidence, but a feeling that there is a likelihood, a substantial likelihood that the thylacine still exists in Western Papua, not Papua New Guinea, certainly not Tasmania, and I don't think mainland Australia, but in Western Papua, between the evidence that I've received, the stories that I've heard, the information that's been given to me, and just a gut damn feeling, I think that the thylacine could still exist in Western Papua. I want to get back to that kind of gut feeling and, and when you know that it's right to start an exposition and the kind of evidence that you need to start and undertake the explorations that you take that often take weeks or even months. But you mentioned the, the early internet a little while ago, and I, I just want to briefly time travel back to the 90s with you because I think it will help orient our audience because your relationship with wildlife and conservation runs really deep. You grew up on a farm in rural Zimbabwe and your mother would often take you and your sister on safari into some of the most remote parts of Africa. I love hearing about people's pivotal childhood moments, right? Like I can remember the exact moment when I was three years old when I fell in love with storytelling. It's one of my very first primal memories. So was there a moment that you remember from your childhood during perhaps one of those expeditions with your mother and sister where you realized, hey, this isn't just something my parents do. This is something I love, something I want to spend my life doing? There's actually several, you know, and it's funny because as you ask that question, they pop into my head like little flashbacks. One of them that was so substantial to me, there's a photograph of it in my book and still alive, was when I was with my grandfather, my, my mother and, and sister were there as well. And we were in Manapool, Zimbabwe, and we went fishing on the Zambezi River, which I was obsessed with as a child. I'm still pretty obsessed with it, to be quite honest. And as we were fishing, this bull elephant came walking down the wash and he walked down this wash to about six feet, maybe I'm exaggerating, eight or 10 feet away from me who was at the time, maybe I would guess 11 years old, sitting there with my fishing rod and my grandfather, who was a good bushman, but a bit blind from being hit over the head during World War II, is blind in one eye and so on and so forth. So he didn't see it coming and I didn't, I was too preoccupied with the fishing and this big bull elephant came walking down this gully towards the banks of the Zambezi River. And I was fishing. And my grandfather said to me, and I got scared, very scared, because I'd never been so close to a wild bull elephant in a place where, quite frankly, there's a lot of human wildlife conflict with elephants. And I got scared. And I looked at my grandfather, who was sitting up the bank from me, and he put his fingers to his lips in a shush motion. He said, if you run, Forrest, you'll be dead. And I remember thinking right then, my heart sunk. You know, I didn't know what to do. And so I just stood there still as could be. And the elephant was just as surprised by our presence as we were of his when he came out of the scully. And I looked at him, and I looked at my grandfather, and these tense, tense moments, which were probably only a few seconds, but felt like an hour went by until the elephant sort of, you know, and he, he blew out of his nose and kicked a little bit of dirt. And then he put his trunk down into the water and started to drink. And about 10 seconds later, I cast my lure back out and continued to fish. And for the remaining 15 minutes that that elephant was eight or 10 feet away from us, I fished and he drank and he finished his drink, turned around, looked at us again. I could swear in my memory he winked, but he didn't and, uh, and walked back up the gully. And I had this moment 
of staring at this elephant in its eyes, knowing that it had the ability to kill me in an instant, and looking at my grandfather for support. My mom took the photo that I'm mentioning. She was up the bank far away having a full panic attack. And I just remember having this moment of there's nothing that I care more about than that feeling. That feeling of having this incredible creature right next to me and having this perfectly neutral interaction. I didn't chase it. It didn't chase me. I didn't scare it. It didn't scare me. Well, we scared each other a little bit, but there was no altercation at all. It was just harmonious for these few moments where we got to live side by side. And as a 10 or 11, whatever year old boy I was, that was the biggest feeling I had ever had, the biggest emotional feeling. And while I was obsessed with wildlife long before that and continue to be to this day, I think that moment among several others where I had this perfect interaction where nobody felt fear or harm or wanted to do a disservice to the other, my human or elephant, was like this perfect moment of living mutually. And I want everyone to experience that. I don't want them to put themselves in life-threatening situations with elephants, but I want everybody to be able to live in harmony with animals. And harmony doesn't mean never hunting them or never eating them or anything like that, but just coexisting with them is a better way to put it. And so, yeah, that moment was very, very pivotal to me. This isn't a one-to-one comparison, but it's the thing that sprung to my mind as I was listening to you. Please. You know, I have veterans in my family and they'll go off to war and they'll spend years in a very specific kind of environment. And then they'll come back to society, to civilian life, as they call it. They'll find themselves feeling alien in the society that we walk around in and appreciate every day because so much of what they experienced back then just feels in some ways almost, and I'm not quite getting this analogy right, but it feels almost more close and real to them. And then coming back to the concrete jungle and the day-to-day life, you know, getting the coffee and talking with Pam and accounting and all that other stuff feels in some ways so much less meaningful and, and meaningless than their time where they were really just doing the absolute basics of survival and having that camaraderie, et cetera, right? Hearing you talk about that moment, you know, as a child in the river and having that deep connection with that elephant, right? What we're doing right now, or just like going out and getting a coffee or like your time in Santa Barbara growing up, does any time that you're away from a setting like that, does that feel alien to you? Do you feel uncomfortable in this environment and more comfortable there? Like, how do you draw that distinction in your mind? I get edgy when I'm home for too long. I've been home since before Christmas, and you can ask my wife, I'm a nightmare at the moment. (laughs) But um, I get a little bit restless when I've been home too long, or, or specifically when I've been home too long without something on the horizon. Right now, I have a big trip on the horizon I'm leaving for next week, so I've had a lot to focus on. But the thing that happens, if you ask me, is we become cut off from the natural world, and we become calloused. And when I say calloused, We don't live in the here and the now, right now, Michael. You know, maybe during this conversation, we're living in the moment, enjoying this conversation. But as soon as we hang up, you and I will both have a hundred different things on our mind. There'll be a cell phone distracting us and a screen somewhere and a person somewhere and a thing there and there. When you're in the bush, whether it's your veterans from your family or or me in Zimbabwe, and again, they're not the same, but when you're in the bush, when you're interacting with wildlife, when you're living in that style, of connectedness with nature, you have the privilege of being able to live in that moment. And I think I strive 
for long periods of time and planning to be able to live in the moment with an animal. And when I come home and I see all these drones, if you will, and I, I don't mean to be rude, but like people that are talking to Pam and accountant and getting their Starbucks latte and getting in their car and driving to work, a lot of them have never even experienced that connectedness to nature. And so they don't know any better or they don't know any different. But those that have experienced it, and, and there's a lot of them, right? That's how companies like Patagonia and things like that make their living is to try and connect people with nature. But those that have experienced it understand what a beautiful thing it is to live in the moment and live connected to nature. And to expand on that one step further, speaking of DNA, I think it's in our DNA to be connected to nature. I think when we live in fluorescent lighting, in four walls, staring at screens and talking on cell phones and so on, we lose something that is hardwired into us, which is to be outside, to get a little bit too cold, a little bit too hot, to be scared of the thing that might bite you and to be hunting for the thing that you're looking for, whatever it happens to be. And when you live like that, even if it's for short periods of time, there is something very primal that strikes up in your being and you, you know, your skin starts to stand on edge a little bit and the hairs on the back of your neck start to get a little bit thicker and you just feel more one with the world. And I think that that's really missing from modern society. Yeah, I've spoken about my history of depression and anxiety on this podcast a few times. And you know, I've gone to therapy and done medication. And I was at a dog park with my dog, Charlie, a few years ago. And this is not the same as, as being on the banks of a river in Africa. But I was watching him just run from moment to moment. You know, like one moment he's smelling a flower, the next moment he's chasing a ball, the next moment he's meeting a dog for the first time, then he hears my name and he runs towards me. And no matter what he was doing, right, in any one of those different actions, he was fully 100% present in whatever he was doing, right? And I just watched him and I thought, all of this stuff that I'm doing, right, that in some ways all of us are doing, the self-help books we read, the medication we take, the therapy we go to, the videos we watch from Dr. Huberman or whatever, like all these things that we do just to grasp for a moment what an animal can do naturally, right? Right, correct. We are a victim of our own evolution, Michael. <laughs> the curse of consciousness. <laughs> Absolutely. We have evolved to have this big, stupid thinking muscle in our head that makes us get so wrapped up in ourselves and our emotions and our feelings and our thoughts that we forget to just live so much. And the environment, the modern Western environment, is only promoting that further. It's not helping us go back to that primal way. And I'm not saying we should all move outside and live in caves because I think that's a terrible idea. But I am saying that you should allow yourself that opportunity to feel like your dog Charlie did chasing that ball or sniffing that thing. And that I think, you know, maybe I'm just a simple guy. And when I can be chasing that extinct creature or trekking through the bush looking for that thing, I get to be only there. There's nothing else. And it doesn't mean I don't love my family. It doesn't mean I don't care about paying my electricity bill. But for the moments that I'm there and doing that, that is the only thing. And I am living like a member of the planet, like a member of the ecosystem, not like somebody in something removed from it in this construct of technology that we've created, which is a weird thing to say on a podcast where we're talking about cutting-edge technology bringing <laughs> animals back. But it's a feeling that I promote everybody going and experiencing. Yeah, no, the irony is heavy, but <laughs> we do what we can. 
You know, but to put that evolved thinking mechanism to use for just a second, I want to flash forward from the 90s to 2013. You were working a three-month contract on the Channel Islands here in Southern California as a biological field tech, or as you put it, quote, the janitor of the biological corporation. You don't get any lower down on the totem pole, end quote. I was the bottom bottom of the peck in order, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And your wife, Jessica, who I imagine was probably your girlfriend or fiance at the time. Correct. She was watching an episode of Naked and Afraid when you got home from work. And she said you'd be a perfect fit for the show because you were doing survival stuff on the weekend for fun. And you sent an email to the casting producer that night, kind of on a whim. The next morning, they called you. And to quote you, quote, 10 days later, I'm on a plane to Panama, end quote. You know, it's 2013. It's 10 years later. Yep. So looking back at how far you've come from those days as a biological janitor (laughs) to now rediscovering species. If my my old boss hears this, I'm going to be in so much trouble. We're still very good (laughs) friends. Please continue. (laughs) I'll make sure not to forward this episode to him. But you're rediscovering species we once thought were extinct. You're advocating on behalf of endangered animals, forwarding the cause of conservation and sustainability in a really meaningful way. How do you think about that? I guess you could call it the cosmic dice roll, right? Jessica could have been watching any other show that evening. <laughs> yeah. She might not have watched it at all. She might not have suggested it to you. So what do you think about that kind of gift of coincidence that brought you to where you are today? I don't think I would have landed where I am today no matter what, but I certainly wasn't going to be a biological field tech forever. I would have, Michael, found my passion and my avenue with which to walk down no matter what. And that was obviously and always going to be in the field of wildlife. What I didn't know until long after Naked and Afraid was that my skill set is more so in communication and my passion is more so in wildlife. And the only reason I can say that now is because what I ultimately do for a living is communicate conservation. I do it on these TV shows and on behalf of Colossal and all of these different places because I'm so passionate about it, because I get so enthralled with these species that I'm targeting and these animals and how incredible and bizarre and unique and fabulous that they are. And so I've been able to communicate that. I had no idea that I was a communicator. I didn't know how TV shows were made or any of it. And the fact that I had such a supportive mother and such a supportive girlfriend at the time and was willing to take risks, and a big part of that was my upbringing and the things that I had done in my childhood, is what allowed me to get to where I am today. And I'm certainly you know, not the most accomplished person in the world, but I believe that I'm exactly where I should be and continuing to push forward when it comes to trying to promote conservation. And so when Colossal announced and came out, immediately I knew that's to someone I wanted to learn more about. It wasn't like all of your listeners. I was a skeptic too, but I wanted to learn more about it. And as I did, and I talked to them and I saw what they were doing and I understood what they stood for, I wanted to be involved in it in any capacity I could, you know, and I'm just very lucky that they noticed me and asked me to be on their conservation advisory board. But all that is to say, I think I always would have found conservation and wildlife. I maybe wouldn't have found the communication for it if it wasn't for that fateful moment. And now in your own way, you're de-extincting animals yourself, not by 
recreating them in a lab, but by rediscovering them out in the wild, like some kind of benevolent bounty hunter biologist. (laughs) The stat that I have on hand is that since 2018, you've captured evidence of the existence of eight animals we once thought were extinct. Is that number still right? That number is correct. The terminology isn't. Eight animals that were previously lost to science is a better way to put it. What's the distinction there? Well, believed extinct is accurate, and this is nuance, right? But declared extinct is not. So things only become declared extinct after 30 years of believed extinction and no physical evidence. And so they were believed extinct, but I think a better way to word it is these were animals that were lost to science, and had we not done something, they would have been declared extinct. You said in an interview at Google that, quote, something rare is hard to find. And something hard to find is hard to protect, end quote. That's a good quote. I didn't know I said that. You did. Yeah, that's nice. It's a really beautifully succinct, powerful phrase that I'd love for you to elaborate on. If it's rare, it's hard to find. And that's pretty obvious, right? It doesn't matter if it's a gemstone or a coin or an animal. It's hard to find. And when something is hard to find, it creates value around it, right? And so the rarity of something creates value around it, usually when it comes to collection, right? Meaning I have to have it. I have to have that ivory. I have to have that opal, whatever it happens to be. And that makes it hard to protect. Now, not all of these things, not all of the rarity of these wildlife make them things that people want to collect. But when these things are hard to find, one, it may pose a financially viable side to collecting it. And I'm thinking of, you know, ivory and things like that nature, tiger whiskers, things like that. And those animals aren't even that rare. But when it comes to these incredibly, incredibly rare creatures, like some of the ones where there are a population of 10 or less in the wild, they're hard to protect because, well, one, nobody knows about them. And two, they're oftentimes in incredibly remote, incredibly difficult places to access because they're so hard to find, or right, or that's why they contribute to being so hard to find. And so it's just very difficult to protect the only Fernandina Island tortoise in the world, or the tiny population of Rio Apoporus caiman that live in FARC rebel-controlled Colombia, or the Miller grizzled langur, which lives in this remote part of Borneo that only one research station is ever visited, you know, and it's by a handful of researchers or a handful of shark species that live in remote, tiny little pockets of the ocean and that are endemic to those regions. You know, it's very, very hard to protect those things. What I have always believed is that by exposing them and bringing them to the attention of the masses, that would help protect them. And that doesn't mean it targets hunters towards them, which is one of the silly comments I get all the time, because nobody knows how to find these things. But it just means that now people are aware of them and can care about them And it's interesting, you said, like, now we found eight of these critters. Well, when I started this, this field didn't exist, right? There wasn't really a search for lost species when I started the whole Extinct or Alive thing. And I remember talking about it to a bunch of scientists, and I won't name any names, but credited, credible biologists, and they said I was a lunatic. You know, I distinctly remember one person being like, well, you might as well be looking for Bigfoot, ha, 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 and laughed it off like I was such a jerk. And then all of a sudden, we started having success after success. Now it's like a pretty big field. I mean, there's at least a dozen plus organizations looking for lost species since we started this whole thing. While that might not be protecting each individual animal that gets found, it's creating awareness that hopefully will ultimately lead to protection. 
Yeah, that's a really great phrase. You can't care about something you don't know exists. That's it. That's a much more succinct way to put it. (laughs) You know, you just mentioned you started a field of science that didn't previously exist. Well, you know, let's not give me all the credit for that. If I said it that way, I didn't fully mean it. But speaking broadly, yeah, it was pretty frowned upon when I first started talking about it. That's for sure. Why do you think there are seemingly so many animals that are either wrongly labeled extinct or I don't know what the right word is, but let's take the the Pondicherry shark that you tracked down in an episode of Extinct or Alive or the dwarf hippo or the flap-nosed hound shark, which hadn't been seen by biologists since 1902 that you found in 2020. Isn't that crazy? Caught one. Got to hold it. Holding an extinct animal. Imagine that, Michael. I will put that clip in the show notes. The joy on your face is contagious. (laughs) Yeah, I freak out. I freak out, I know. So what's the mechanism in the scientific community that triggers, well, we haven't seen this animal in a while, it must be extinct response? Or to put it another way, what is happening in the conservation space that allows a show like Extinct or Alive to exist in the first place? Why are living animals getting labeled extinct often enough for you to have a show that proves those assertions wrong? Great question. The short answer is ego and arrogance, okay? We as human beings like to think that we have everything figured out and like to control everything. And a big part of control is labels. I've become sort of this cynical, like anti-academic in the last few years. And I don't really mean to be because I certainly live in an academic world and I come from an academic background. But the system is very, very flawed, Michael. And the system is, if I write a paper, and I'm talking about the system of wildlife biology, right? If I write a paper, if I work for a university or an organization, and that gets published, and I make a big snappy declaration or a headline, then that paper gets picked up. And as that paper gets picked up, I'm able to secure more funding and continue my work. And so it's a cyclical thing. So it's very easy to be like, well, we searched, and after three weeks of surveying, we didn't find it, so we're declaring it extinct. And the big headline in Nature this week, oh, well, look at that. So-and-so just got published in Nature. They published this. They're the scientist that has declared this animal extinct based on their comprehensive survey. And now that person can get funding and continue to do work and move on to other things. So guess who's suffering in that situation, Michael? I'm going to assume the animals that we don't know we should protect. Exactly right. Exactly right. So the cynical cycle exists where as an academic, I have to publish. I also have this ego affiliated with it because I have to be the first to put it out there. And as I put it out there, then people can read it. And as that gets picked up, then I can write more papers and get funded to continue my work and so on and so forth. By the way, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying all academics are bad or anything like that. That's ridiculous. You know, I'm just talking about a broken system. And so these things get declared extinct and things much more so than extinction, get labeled wrongly or get published incorrectly. And it doesn't mean that the scientists publishing it, they genuinely believe what they're publishing and they think what they're doing is right. But there is a race to get this information out there in order to stay relevant, in order to continue being funded. And the only one who suffers is the extinct creature. And let's not forget, as soon as something is labeled extinct, that's the end. It doesn't exist any longer. There's no funding. There's no looking for it. There's no trying to save it. There's no trying to save its habitat, by the way, because if this was the flagship animal of that environment and now we've written it off as extinct, well, you know, we don't really need to protect this habitat anymore. Like that animal's gone. Let's move on to the next thing. So there is this sort of ugly cycle that I think we indirectly exposed with our show 
And that's now spurred a wonderful thing, which is a whole field of this study and a whole bunch of different people and scientists and groups banding together and making the extinction uh, quests. It just wasn't there before. There was zero dollars in it. You know, the idea of, hey, give me $10,000 to go look for this animal that's declared extinct is like, you know, it's like saying, give me $10,000 to go look for the Loch Ness Monster. People are just like, you're insane. Like, why would I pay for that? Yeah, that makes total sense. If you write off the existence of a thing, you'll cease to care about it. You're ceasing to care about something at the very moment in which you need to care about it the most. It's like there's someone in the hospital on life support and you declare them dead (laughs) while they're still alive, you know? That's exactly right. And keep in mind, it's a very big hospital, right? And there are a lot of places to hide. And I think that's the other factor, right? It's not like people are going in doing a half-assed effort and being like, yep, it's extinct, let's move on. And then, ha, 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 evil, evil laugh, right? That's not what's going on. It's a big world and there are a lot of places to hide. And another thing in my tyrannical rant against academia, a lot of these quote-unquote world-leading experts don't have any real field experience or they're not cut out to go further than anybody else is willing to go or spend longer in the jungle or stay out all night in freezing conditions or whatever it takes to find these animals, which is why we've been successful, quite frankly. It's because we've put ourselves through hell and back. And if you come from a cushy university gig and you spend 35 years in academia becoming an expert, well, you're not of the age or the ability or the skill set because of your background to actually be the one that goes out and finds this thing because you've spent 35 years in a lab or in a, in a different field or in a university classroom, right? Studying it, quote, you know, and I, I'm sure those animals, you know, they're going to know the jaw morphology or the tongue structure much better than I ever will. But I spend my life actually on the ground looking for these things. And that's allowed me the ability to find them. I want to call back to a fellow explorer that you've referenced, Colonel Percy Harrison Fawcett. Big fan. Big fan. A British surveyor who set out after World War I to find the lost city of Z in the Amazon jungle, what Fawcett believed to be a complex civilization that once existed there. Now, he never found Z, and he disappeared during his second expedition never to return. So you've gone on these expeditions to find these potentially extinct species before, How do you guard against becoming Fawcett? How do you go about choosing the potential animal to look for? What's the threshold of evidence or potential evidence that needs to be hit to justify the time and money that must be spent hunting down what may or may not turn out to be a ghost? Yeah, well, it's a good question. First of all, I think if Percy Fawcett had had a camera crew and been able to tell a story along the way of look at this incredible jungle and this important ecosystem that we need to protect, people would have cared much less whether he did or didn't find the lost city of Z, right? And that's what we do. Because it's not like we're successful every time, right? We've found eight lost animals, but we've been on 26 expeditions or something. I'd have to check that. But, you know, so we're not successful every time. But that being said, we have a checklist of criteria that we have to hit before we launch an expedition. And keep in mind, we're dealing with you know, financiers money. So it's not like this is coming out of my pocket, right? I'm getting Discovery Channel or whomever it is to fund these trips. And so in order for them to fund it, we have to be able to argue with relatively good certainty that we have a likelihood of success. And so we have this checklist of criteria. When was the animal declared extinct? Why was it declared extinct? When was it last seen? Are there ongoing reports or evidence of its existence? 
what is the habitat like in which it used to exist? Is it degraded or is it still viable for that animal to still be there? What's the predator-prey relationship? You know, has there been a predator that's exploded that would eat this thing out of existence? Or is this a predator that has enough prey left in that ecosystem to support it? Or it's a herbivore, whatever. But, you know, there's this, this checklist of criteria. And then you couple that with as much research. And it's so hard to explain the amount of research that we put into this, Michael. Like, you can only imagine the Googles, the phone calls, the Zooms the number of utter lunatics that we have to talk to to get to the bottom of whether these things are realistic or not. you know, And we log all of this in these miserable-looking Excel spreadsheets. And then basically, if it checks all these boxes and there are still reports you know, from local people or, or from visitors or whatever, yeah, we've seen it and yeah, it could be there. And yeah, last year, my uncle Jim Bob actually shot one or whatever it happens to be, <laughs> then, we, then we go for it. And to go back to something we mentioned earlier, guess what, Michael? The thylacine in Western Papua checks all those boxes. Oh, wow. So in some ways, it's going to be a race between you and Colossal as to who, <laughs> who brings back the thylacine no, first. <laughs> I don't care. I, I don't care. I, I mean, yes and no, but let's say there's $5 million on the line, which I certainly don't have. And you said, hey, $5 million, go find the thylacine or $5 million, Colossal builds a thylacine, go one way or the other. I'd probably hand it to Colossal, right? Because... They are on track to do it. Me spending $5 million to find it, don't get me wrong, we're going to find some awesome stuff, but I can't guarantee we're going to find it and they can guarantee they're going to make one. I don't see it as a competition. All I care about is that I get to see one in my life. Of course. I was a bit tongue-in-cheek there. No, it's fun. It's really fun. <laughs> you know. And tell Ben, if Ben listens to this, Ben, I'm going to find it before you make one, just so you know. <laughs> it's like your own around the world in 80 days sort of thing. That's right. Yeah, exactly. A good race. To do a hard pivot here, I watched your videos for GQ titled Wildlife Expert Breaks Down Animal Scenes from Movies. Those are hilarious. They're everywhere, too. <laughs> They're really good. I think you've done, what, three of them? I Something like that. They've parceled them out into so many now. And whether you were discussing the mischievous nature of an Asian small-clawed otter featured in Ace Ventura Pet Detective or the playful intelligence of orcas or the inaccurate wolf pack formation in <laughs> Liam Neeson's film, The Gray, uh -huh. or how an actual anaconda's eyes are more peaceful looking than the scary CGI version featured in the Jennifer Lopez helm film, Anaconda. That's a documentary, by the way. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> what really came through again and again was your joyful enthusiasm and love for animals of all kinds. You seem to have a soft spot for animals that are often maligned or made out in popular media to be evil? What drives that? You know, that's a really good observation, Michael. I, I don't think that I've ever really like announced that, and I absolutely do. And what drives that is, it's really simple. If you villainize something, you want it to go away. You know, if we're scared of the big bad wolf or the evil tiger or the man-eating crocodile, we're very happy for it to disappear. We want it to go away. And none of that is true. There is no such thing as a big bad wolf or a man eating anything. You know, it is victim of circumstance always when humans get hurt. These are predators. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying go cuddle the next crocodile, you see. But it's just a misunderstanding. And what happens is the media, in their attempt to get eyeballs, furthers this misunderstanding. And they make movies like Anaconda and The Gray and things like that, which all they do is instill fear. If I put my three year old, in front of the movie Anaconda right now, 
by the time he was done watching it, he would never, ever, ever want to see an anaconda in the wild. It's the same thing that happened with the movie Jaws. But, and this is a real thing that happened, if I strap my three-year-old to my back, and I'm not saying everybody can do this, and take him to Benito, Brazil, and hop in the water and show him what a 20-foot anaconda is like and how I can hold it without restraining its head and how it has no interest in biting me and it could swim right around me just sort of trying to get on with its day and basically sighing at the inconvenience that this weird fleshy meat bag is touching it. (laughs) Now he's enamored with the thing. And so I think it's so important to break down that villainizing stereotype so that we can love these things and respect them Because respect and fear are not the same thing. And fearing them is not respecting them. Yes. What it sounds like to me, to draw a comparison, if your child had watched the movie Anaconda, it could potentially send them down a path where they would be fearing rather than respecting and being in awe of these animals that are such a critical part of our ecosystem. In a way, it would be like if when you were on the river with your grandfather looking at that bull elephant, that was another inflection point, right? What you're saying is there's an importance in every moment that a child is about to interact with a wild thing for the first time, that there's a choice that not only we as individuals have to make, but as a society we have to make in order to either get these children excited about and in love with animals and wildlife conservation or make them terrified of it. And that seems to be what's really important for you. Exactly right. Yeah, that's very, very well put. If my grandfather had pulled out a 458 and shot that elephant in the head and gone on and on about how lucky we were to survive, I would never, not that he would ever do that or that was legal, but I'm just pointing it out. I would never have had that connection and that emotional feeling and grown up to want to protect them. And I'm not saying everybody needs to grow up to become a wildlife biologist, but you should fall in love with wildlife and want to conserve it and support it, not fear it because of something you've seen on TV or a stereotype that's been painted. And these creatures are misunderstood. And it's one of the reasons wolves have been so, so villainized. The big bad wolf, the three pigs and the wolf, Little Red Riding Hood and the wolf, like all these things. Wolves are practically gone from the planet, Michael. I mean, there's, don't get me wrong, you know, they're coming back in certain areas and all of that, but they've been eradicated from so much of their range. And it's because of a a stigma that we've created that's unwarranted. You know, they've killed a tiny handful of people in written human history. And yet, There's not a single person that thinks of a wolf that doesn't think of, oh man, that thing's going to rip me to shreds. This is sort of a curveball, but as I was researching and and watching your various videos about whales, you once said, quote, the general consensus is that they're restricted by their morphology. Their body type doesn't allow them to share with us how much more intelligent they are than we realize, end quote. And so while I have you here, selfishly, I'd love for you to speak more about that. What do we know about whale intelligence? And what do members of the general public like me, what's something we don't know about whales and their intelligence that you'd love to share with us? We're starting to understand them more and more, but we have still barely scratched the surface. Whales are the most acoustically advanced creatures on the planet. They can communicate through sound waves that we can't hear, we can't feel, we can't see, we can't touch. They form social bonds and family groups. They have incredible dynamics. There is so much compassion for their offspring. And this is represented in some media. I mean, think of the movie Free Willy, right? We fall in love with Willy in that movie because of his intelligence. We don't fall in love with him because he's pretty. We fall in love with him because he feels trapped in his intelligence and he wants to join his family, so on and so forth. And so 
Well, we do have a very, very, very surface level understanding that, hey, whales are really smart. They have evolved for so many millions of years so independently of human beings and primates and our lineage that we have no way of communicating with them. We don't understand them. We don't understand what they're saying or why they're saying it, how their family bonds are formed or how their touch-feel complexes work or any of that. And thus, we sort of write them off as these big, funny-looking blobs and like, oh, I'm going to jump in a boat and go watch one blow a spout of water. Cool, let's move on. And yet, here are these creatures that are arguably, according to some people, more intelligent than we are that are just restrained by their bodies. You know, they don't have, and when I say they're restricted by their bodies, what I mean is they don't have vocal cords the way we do. They can't tell us we're suffering, we're struggling, this is no good, please don't eat all our fish. The sound pollution is literally driving me insane. You know, they have no way of communicating with us these things that we're just now starting to understand. And the science is coming out more and more every year. But it's just there's this terrible breakdown in communication between us and these incredibly intelligent cetaceans. It borders on criminal, especially if you think about how we used to slaughter them for oil and blubber when they're just these like fascinating, peaceful animals that just (laughs) want to be left alone. Have you seen the movie Arrival? That's the one with the numbers, with the aliens, with the numbers, and time is sort of the linear construct. Yeah. Love that movie. Yeah, I just want to make sure I was thinking the right one. Yeah, it was excellent. Excellent film. Yeah, there's those scenes where they're in this room, and there's almost like this glass that separates them from the humans, and they spray this kind of ink-like stuff on the surface. And over time, like humans slowly learn to understand what those squiggles on the wall mean. And it sounds to me, like in my own layman's understanding of what you're saying, is like, Whales, in a way, could be like aliens living among us. And we just can't understand them because we don't even have an idea of how to interpret their language because it could be so foreign to us, like an alien touching down on Earth and spraying ink on a plexiglass. Exactly right. And those aliens had a written language. And that's, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember the movie perfectly, but that's how we became to understand them, right? Yes. Whales will never have a written language. They don't have the appendages for it. So, you know, there's nothing for us to decode Physically, you know, it's sounds and bumps and signals that we as human beings. Imagine if I just looked at you over the Zoom, Michael, and you're like, yep, I got it, man. I'm going to go make you a sandwich. (laughs) That's how whales communicate, at least to our understanding. And that's not even fathomable to us. I don't know if this is too into the weeds, but what's the progress being made on trying to make sense of whale language? right? Because we can hear them communicate. Do we even have a rudimentary understanding of what they could potentially be saying to one another? I'm imagining there's work being done right now on that. I strongly recommend to your listeners to buy a book called Listening to Whales by Alexander Mortensen. She's a fantastic fisheries scientist from the Pacific Northwest who spent most of her career before she became you know, really into the fisheries and the, the salmon spawning issue, studying whales and orcas and communication and It's a really, really good book. It's a very easy read. She talks about dolphins at SeaWorld and how they're trying to learn their language. So that's just something I want to just throw out there for people listening. Secondly, it's evolving as technology evolves. You know, we're, we're coming up with better and better hydrophones and the ability to monitor it and interpret certain clicks and whistles and things like that. But like I said earlier, it is so rudimentary, our understanding. And it's, it's sort of like, pre-colossal to tie back into our regular speech here. 
in the sense of there's just no money in it. You know, nobody's funding it. There's no Elon Musk being like, hey, guys, here's $2 billion. Go figure out whale language. Because if they did that, we probably would, right? But instead, what you have is a handful of really scrappy scientists who are obsessed with these creatures that are piecemealing together technology and various devices to go out and do a little bit of study until their funding drives up. And then they go back into their office or lab writing grants and research proposals for the next year until they can get that little chunk of cash again. So it's like everything, (laughs) our understanding is slow and it's probably going to be too little too late. To stay on that aliens and whales analogy, you once said, people long for the unknown. And there's so many similarities just having this conversation with you right now between people who go to space and the folks who do what you do. To see the yet unseen, to glimpse at a project larger and more important than ourselves, to touch the long unbroken line of history with your bare hand and feel connected to everything that came before and everything that is yet to come. You know, like it's one thing for me to watch you do it, you know, like on Extinct or Alive or to hear you talk about it or to read about it in your book. When you're out there, you're putting your hand on history. When you're seeing something that no human being has seen in maybe hundreds of years, maybe this is hard to quantify in language but I want you to try. How does it feel? It's really hard to quantify in language. If I think back to the moment I picked up fern, the Fernandina Island tortoise, the only one in existence, the rarest species in the world, missing for 114 years, just saying it right now, and obviously the listeners can't see this, I'm getting goosebumps because that moment was so big for me. And not everybody's going to feel like that about a tortoise, but For me, that moment was so much. It's like we rewrote history. I'm holding a living physical piece of history that's been missing since the time of Charles Darwin. I'm so overwhelmed. And I'm not a very emotional person. You know, I don't I don't like get you don't see me screaming and like people or, you know, like you can talk to my crew like I'm pretty level most of the time. But I get so emotionally overwhelmed when these moments happen. I remember and I've never told anybody this before. But we were doing an elephant translocation in Mozambique where we moved 24 elephants that were basically rogue elephants and were having terrible human wildlife conflict. And we got the whole family herd, but we couldn't get the damn bull. He was too smart. He figured out what we were doing and he cruised off from the rest of the group. And so all these girls and babies were dropped down, you know, tranquilized, getting loaded onto the trucks with our cranes and stuff. And finally, from the chopper, we found the bull after like three days put a dart into him and he dropped to the ground. You have three minutes from when an elephant hits the ground to get its trunk out from under it or asphyxiates to death, right? So you have to get there really quick. And we're talking three minutes from like the moment he drops. So you could still be in the air in a helicopter, in a truck or whatever. And there's no roads. You're in the middle of the African bush. And I remember sprinting through to this clearing in the Masasa trees. And there lay this magnificent bull elephant. And I said, I never told anybody this before. I came up on him. His trunk was fine. He was clear. He was breathing. And I put my hand on him. And one of the only times in my entire life, I had to fight back major tears. Like I just like I I was so overwhelmed by the emotion. And I wasn't sad and I wasn't happy. I don't even know what I was, to be honest, because we had succeeded, but the mission wasn't over. We still had to get him on the truck and get him and move him 300 miles and blah, blah, blah. But I, I touched this elephant. I put my hand on the sleeping bull elephant 
who had these wounds in his trunk from poachers, these snare wounds. And I just like, I, I, it took everything in me. I was, you know, when you get the lump in your throat and you're swallowing it and you're like, come on, get down, get the fuck down. And like, it took everything in me to not burst into tears without even knowing why I was bursting into tears. Like, I don't know if I was happy or sad or angry or accomplished. Like, I don't even know what the emotion was, but it took everything in me to not cry in that moment, which I know how bizarre that feels, but I was just overcome by that emotion. It doesn't sound bizarre to me at all. I want to share something that this is a much, much smaller, less dramatic story. So my dog, Charlie, is going to be five in a few months. I got him when he was two months old back in 2018, and he's been through a lot with me. I got him at a point in my life in which I didn't realize how much I needed him until I had him. And he's done so much for me. And right before the pandemic in 2020, he started just a long story short, suffer from a kind of illness. And I had to take him to over the, in the worst possible time to go to the vet over the next 18 months, I had to take him to specialists all across Los Angeles. And the thing is, is when they're doing these tests, you know, the blood, x-ray, ultrasounds, and combining that with all the protocols that were happening because of the coronavirus, he would be there oftentimes for eight hours at a stretch, right? And Charlie is just the most extroverted, human-loving little boy. And before this, he was the only dog that I ever saw not get nervous going to the vet. He would get excited to go to the vet because he was so excited to see the nurses and get pets, and he was totally fine. And then there was this moment, <laughs> I'm going to try not to, I'm going to try to push through this. There was this moment where I think it was like our sixth time having to do like another eight-hour session, and it was the very first time that when we pulled up and the nurse came out, he ran to the other side of the car and just started whimpering, right? And I had to forcibly go in and get him and hand him to the nurse and he was shaking and I'd never seen him be like that before. And I drove around the corner and I just sobbed. Not only was I so broken up by what he'd been through that caused him to be that way, but it was the other part, which I'm hoping maybe ties into what you experienced. I just wished so badly that I could talk to him and explain to him what was going on. Because without being able to do that, all I was doing was putting him in these situations which he hated, which were traumatic for him. And if I could have just waved a magic wand or asked a genie for 30 seconds of grace and I could look him dead in the eyes and just tell him what was happening, he would feel better and I would as well. And again, I don't know what was going through your mind, but I imagine in a moment like that, I bet you wish these elephants are so smart. I bet you wish you could just say, hey, man. Oh, of course. Like we've been chasing you down in a copter. I just want you to know what we're trying to do. It's for your own good. Please trust me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a wonderful Michael. There's a wonderful... Have you ever watched the Netflix series Explained? I've heard of it. I haven't watched it. Is that the one by Vox? It is. It's by Vox. And they just do little 15 to 30 minute long pieces, really taking a deep dive into all kinds of things, country music and money and economy and all kinds of things. I just watched the one on dogs last night. And... I recommend you watch it, but I'll say this. I bet Charlie, deep down, he knew, even though he didn't understand, he knew that you were trying to help him. Uh, thanks, Forrest. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, he's a great little dude. But anyway, back to your point. Yes, every ounce of my being wanted to tell. And this is the case for every single time I'm ever dealing with an animal, right? Because we put a lot of animals through a lot of stress, quite frankly, you know, when we're catching them and moving them and 
taking them out of conflict zones and whatever it happens to be, we put them through a ton of stress. And I wish that you could say to them like, hey, this is for your own good. Like, I'm not doing this to hurt you. You know, and whether that's a crocodile, like one we caught in Caborabasa that's killed 10 people or not, like, I'd still be really nice to tell them like, hey, just relax for a second. Like, you're going to have a better life after this. But yeah, sadly, sadly, that doesn't exist yet. To wrap us out, Forrest, and I've so enjoyed this conversation. Oh, thank you. Me too. And I really, really appreciate your time. You've done dozens, maybe hundreds of interviews at this point. You know, like as I was trying to think of questions to ask you, one that came to mind was this. What's a question you've never been asked that you would love to answer? You know what's something I've never been asked? If I could do anything in the space of conservation, what is it that I would do? Because I get, I get asked all the time about specifics and animals and habitats and ecosystems. I don't think I've ever been asked, hey, if you could do anything, if you could wave your magic wand, what is it you would focus on in conservation? Because like everybody and everything, I have to do the things I can get supported and funded and you know the things that are topical or you know so on and so forth. So I think if money were not a factor, financing were not a factor, and somebody said to me, Forrest, you can do anything in the space of conservation. What do you want to do? I would do my best to figure out a way to communicate how wonderful conservation is to the most people possible. Because I believe that the future of conservation is not saving a species or creating a national park or saving a habitat. While all those things are incredibly critical and important, I believe it's changing a mindset in our population. And that is a mindset that these things are valuable and that they deserve, and by things I mean creatures, are valuable and that they deserve to be here and that we should share this planet and not compete for it, which is something we seem to be so driven to do. I don't have an answer as to how I do that just yet. You know, like I I would love to stand on top of the tallest building in the world and make sure everybody could hear me, but I don't necessarily want to be the person at the center of it. I just I want to figure out, and I'd love, you know, maybe your listeners help or whomever hears this help. How do we reach the most people to understand how magnificent animals are? Because if we can fall in love with them, then we can care about them. And if we can care about them, then we can protect them. And I think that's the key that is so missing in so many of the sciences. Like we just want to protect them, but we don't care about people loving them. And I think the only way that we protect them is by making a lot of people love them. If it's not clear to anyone who's listened to our conversation today, and I don't know how it couldn't be, you have such a heart for animals. Oh, thanks, man. And not just the cute ones. <laughs> no, in fact, I like the ugly ones even more. <laughs> in prepping for our talk today and watching your work, don't let this go to your head, but you've helped me to re-examine my own prejudices against animals that are too often portrayed as the quote-unquote bad guys, when really all they're doing, and you've said it here, is performing a vital and necessary role in a complex ecosystem that is now more than ever hanging rather precariously in the balance. You talked about hope at the beginning of our conversation, and you've given that to me. And it was an unexpected gift, but a welcome one. So thank you, Forrest, and thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much for having me and for listening to me.
Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.